This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In-flight medical emergencies are relatively uncommon, but if you fly often enough, it uh, wouldn't be unusual for your services as a healthcare provider to be requested on a flight. Flying at 30 to 40,000 feet with limited medical equipment and hours away from your destination can make even the most experienced clinician anxious when our assistance is requested. What are our responsibilities as healthcare providers and what are our liability risks and what assistance might we have when we volunteer to assist in an in-flight medical emergency? To answer these questions, we have two very qualified physicians, both experts in aerospace medicine. Dr. Robert Haddon is an internist at Mayo Clinic Rochester and former NASA and U.S. Air Force physician. And Dr. Mary Jane Harris is a U.S. Air Force pilot and commercial pilot and currently a fellow in the Mayo Aerospace Fellowship. Thank you both for coming today to discuss this really important and interesting topic. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, let's start by talking about the most common in-flight medical emergencies. What do we see most often in the air? It depends on how you count. One study done by NABLE in 2017 looked at calls to a ground medical support center, and they saw syncope and respiratory events being the most common followed by nausea, vomiting, cardiac symptoms, and seizures. This happened about one flight in 600 or so. But since this was a ground-based center, they got the more serious stuff. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there was a British study where they asked flight attendants to fill out records of what they encountered in flight without calling it to the ground. And this was more than 25% gastrointestinal symptoms, as you might expect, with about 5% or less of cardiac, neuro, and vasovagal and respiratory. And I imagine it's kind of like when we call a code, a lot of them are kind of false positive uh, call or you know, calls that aren't true uh, emergencies, but uh, it's not known initially. That's right. One of the challenges that I'd like to help healthcare providers with today is when they get on a plane, what do they need to have in mind when that announcement comes overhead what do you need to do? How can you be ready? Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's say uh, you're, you're flying. You're a healthcare provider, nurse, nurse practitioner, physician. Uh, what, uh, what should we do when we get on a plane? And we would be one who would volunteer to help. Well, the flight attendants are supposed to know that you are some kind of a licensed health care provider, especially if they want to give you access to the medical kit on board. There's a first aid kit. There's a uh, AED, which the flight attendants are qualified to use. However, there's also a medical kit on board that is only allowed to be opened by a licensed healthcare provider. So if you have some way of showing that you are a licensed healthcare provider, uh, they're much more, you know, they feel better about allowing you access to that kit. 
And they don't know we're healthcare providers unless we let them know, correct? Exactly. So it would be best if you had some kind of ID. I know a lot of people don't carry their medical licenses with mm -hmm. them, but some sort of ID that would allow you to know what, um, allow them to know what, that you really are, that you are a healthcare provider. Okay. All right. Do we know how often there are healthcare providers on flights? Does it, is it pretty common or is it uncommon? Well, we really don't because it isn't tracked and there is no requirement to uh, report it uh, or for you to sign up when you get on. Um, and by healthcare providers, the federal law on U.S. carriers protects and refers to anybody who has a license from the following list, physicians, nurses, physician assistants, paramedics, and emergency medical technicians. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all of those, the odds that somebody from one of those areas is on the plane is pretty high. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know. Have You've both not only, you know, Mary Jane, you've flown in the cockpit, uh, but as a passenger, have either of you volunteered your services? Has that come up on a flight that you've taken? I've actually never been a passenger during an in-flight emergency on a uh, commercial aircraft. Mm -hmm. All of the times I've had the in-flight emergencies, I was one of the pilots of the aircraft. Okay. And Bob, how about you? Uh, it's happened to me four times, uh, twice over the middle of the Atlantic, um, and I don't seem to be able to not stand up. Uh, so I'm very interested in being ready uh, when it does happen. Mm -hmm. I've had it happen twice in my flying career. Um, once, the most anxious provoking one was in the middle of the Atlantic. We were like three hours from any place that we could land. And I remember uh, standing up and walking to the back of the plane and I was met by another physician. And uh, he asked what my specialty was. And I said, well, internal medicine, geriatrics. And I said, what's yours? He said, pediatrics. So we kept walking and we got to the back of the plane. There was this 198 year old man blue on oxygen the other guy slapped me on the back and said you win you're in charge so it was uh, it was not a pleasant experience and you raise an, an excellent couple of points which is when they ask for a doctor you don't necessarily know what it is that you are about to be involved in correct but also if there are other healthcare providers that are also standing up there is a moment at the beginning where you can assess and sort out and see who has what strengths. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, what's the protocol that's taken? Let's say uh, a flight attendant is aware that a passenger is in some distress. What happens next? Well, I'll say every company probably has different protocols, but very generally, the flight attendant will assess to the best of their ability, may even talk to the person who is with the, the person in distress, and then probably let the, uh, the captain know that there is a problem. At that time, this allows the captain to start thinking about what he or she might do depending on more of the information that they get. The flight attendants then will probably make that call that you hear over the PA, mm -hmm. which is, is there a doctor on board? And then assess who stands up and 
who will volunteer their services. Once that happens, it's likely, of course, that that doctor or various healthcare providers hopefully will introduce themselves so that everybody knows where the specialty mm -hmm. uh, lies. Uh, check out the patient. Now, that one of the things that inter is interesting, it, no matter where that person is, it's going to be a cramped right, location. Right. So I've always thought that it's really good to figure out what's going on quickly, who's the best one to take the lead. And then, for example, myself, I'm a psychiatrist. So if I happen to be with a bunch of cardiologists and it was a chest pain, mm -hmm. I might say, you know what? This is uh, this is great. You folks have it. I'm going to go back to my seat. However, I've identified myself and my specialty. And if it turns out that they figure out that it's a panic attack, they may then come. They may come back and say, guess what? This is more your specialty right, right now. So just let to go on with the protocol. At that point, once the physician or healthcare provider has had chance to assess, then he or she will probably get to speak to the captain. Okay. Now, I highly recommend requesting to speak to the captain directly. The flight attendant may initially try to relay, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking, hey, can I have that, that phone thing that mm -hmm. you're using, that intercom, to just speak directly to the captain? One of the other things that may happen is you may discover that the captain has already contacted one of these on the ground uh, physician groups and may you the doctor on board may end up talking to the doctor on the ground and that's all great for the the best uh, the best communication do you care for athletes and other active patients Engage with sports medicine experts November 8th and 9th, 2019 at the Mayo Clinic Symposium on Sports Medicine. Participate in cutting-edge diagnostic and treatment strategies through live demonstrations and expert case presentations. To learn more, visit ce.mayo.edu slash sportsmedicine2019. We are in an unusual environment up in the air, not fully pressurized cabin. Um, some have had maybe too much to drink. Are there some specific questions we should ask patients on flights um, different than we would typically ask in an exam room on, on ground? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the aircraft environment is different in a couple of important ways uh, from what we are used to. Uh, an aircraft cabin is pressurized to about 8,000 feet, so you're well up above Denver uh, in the foothills of the Rockies. So anything that involves trapped air or dissolved nitrogen after scuba diving might become a problem. So the special questions you ask are, have you had surgery, both for trapped air including surgically placed bubbles in the eye. So if somebody goes blind after takeoff in one eye on an aircraft, you can ask the captain to pressurize the cabin and shrink that bubble so their retina becomes perfused. This has happened. Also, 
after surgery, the risk of pulmonary embolism is increased. So you ask about surgery. You also ask if they were scuba diving or even snorkeling because that can tear up uh, or irritate the linings of your sinuses, even if it does not put you at risk for decompression sickness. But if they are flying after actual scuba diving, they are at risk for decompression sickness, which is a consideration. Another thing is that people are in a hurry when they are traveling. Maybe they missed their medicine that morning. Did you take your medicines? What medicines do you take? If they're on insulin, did you eat? Or did you not take your insulin? Do you use oxygen at baseline? This is important because in the aircraft cabin, most of us are sitting there with an arterial oxygen saturation of about 92%, which is fine for just sitting there. But if you're already oxygen dependent on the ground or marginal, that environment might trip them over. The last thing is if you have somebody who has perhaps gotten hit in the head by a piece of luggage falling out of an overhead compartment is to ask, are they anticoagulated? You don't have all of your stuff on the plane. You don't have a CT scanner. You can't do labs. So if somebody had been hit in the head and they're anticoagulated, you might need to do serial neurological exams to see if you have an evolving bleed in their head. Hmm. Interesting. That's the, the big concern that healthcare providers have when they're flying and they volunteer is, is this going to be something that I can take care of? Um, and what is my liability risk if I kind of go outside my area of comfort? So what are our liability risks when we provide assistance? The federal law protects physicians, nurses, physician assistants, paramedics, and emergency medical technicians. And the spirit of this law is to allow you to do in good faith what you are trained to do without worrying too much about any legal consequences. There are two specific contraindications. You are not protected if you exercise gross negligence. You are also not protected if there is malfeasance. So how much is, where, where does that line, when do we cross that line? Is that uh, easy to describe? Well, you should use your judgment and understand that people want you to help, but you're going to have to use your judgment. So for example, I was helping a man with a kidney stone cross the Atlantic on a German carrier, and the doctor on the ground told me what was in the German medical kit, which included a benzodiazepine with which I was not familiar, but it was what was available. Now, I don't normally do IM shots, but I used it because that was appropriate in the situation. I incidentally gave him my own personal ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. Now, on the ground, you might say, well, doctor, were you not diverting your ibuprofen to give to that patient? Well, that might be a conversation on the ground, but in this situation, that was a good faith exercise in helping the patient, and that's what the law covers. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't been anywhere near a delivery room in 20 years. If I were call, if I were the only if I were the ranking healthcare provider on the plane and I'm an internist and 
a woman is delivering a baby on the plane, I'm going to do the best I can helping. I'm not going to say, well, I'm not an OB. On the other hand, I'm going to be very careful not to do things for which I am not qualified. You okay. do the best you can, but you always stay within what you consider to be a safe exercise of your abilities. Okay. Are we legally provided to respond to these emergencies? No, we're not. And there are many situations where maybe that somebody wouldn't choose to respond. Uh, one in, in one case certainly is if maybe you've been drinking some alcohol sure. on board the mm -hmm. aircraft. Uh, pilots aren't allowed to fly by law within 12 hours of, uh, of actually it's eight hours, uh, but some airlines move it up to 12 hours of having a drink. So you can see that if you were in any way, um, uh, let's just say buzzed mm -hmm. uh, for a better, uh, for any better word, that uh, maybe it wouldn't be, especially if it was something that was maybe outside your normal realm of, of sure. care. Or yeah. maybe taking a sedative hypnotic if you wanted to sleep on the flight. S certainly. Sure. Yeah, that would be another reason that okay. you wouldn't volunteer. Maybe. And this is really important to have in your mind decided on ahead of time because if you are if you were an intern, you're programmed to wake up and start doing medical stuff when you wake up. And that is not what you want to do if you've taken a sedative on the plane across the Atlantic. So I'm a big fan of what I call the pre-decision. Mm -hmm. When you get on a plane and your healthcare provider, have in mind how it's going to go if they ask. And you can say no, mm -hmm. but if you're gonna say no, you know, be, be ready for that, and that's okay. If your license has expired, but you're still of a medical frame of mind, remember that you are no longer protected. It is okay to say no. If you say yes, then you need to act in good faith, as we have talked about. We've talked a little bit about the equipment that's available on these flights. I remember when uh, one of my circumstances, I was amazed at the variety of medications they had uh, defibrillator. You mentioned, unfortunately, there's no CT scan on the plane, but uh, we can usually get along without that. What I was surprised at, though, was the $5 stethoscope they had. It was an incredibly cheap stethoscope, hard plastic tips, and with the jet noise, you could not hear a thing. So you had to do a blood pressure by palpation. Uh, but I was amazed at how much they spent for the wide variety of uh, pharmacologic stuff but uh, the basic stuff uh, was not optimal. What can we expect to find on these medical kits, or does it vary from airline to airline? It will vary from airline to airline. The federal law does require that the emergency kit, there's a first aid kit and the emergency kit, has the stethoscope, some airways, 500 cc's of saline with IVs to put that in, to uh, infuse that. Uh, a few uh, pharmaceuticals, including epinephrine, both for um, ACLS as well as for anaphylaxis, um, as well as some common antihistamines. Um, 
some of the medications are no longer in the ACLS protocol because the law uh, refers to was written in a, in a prior era. Um, individual carriers may also have um, variations as, as discussed. You also have an AED, you have oxygen portable to get two patients, two passengers through the rest of the flight, uh, the first aid kit. Um, in addition, you do have as a resource anything that you are carrying, that you choose to carry, like some physicians carry anti-emetics, sublingual anti-emetics, because they're not typically on the plane. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have the expertise of the other people on the plane if they are willing to participate, and you are allowed to ask, to make inquiries, does anybody have X? How about the flight crew? Are they given any training in handling medical problems? The, uh, the cabin crew, which are the flight attendants, definitely are CPR qualified mm -hmm. for the, uh, because there's an AED on board, and they may get some basic first aid. That being said, they're highly trained to get a plane load of healthy people out of the aircraft in an emergency. Mm -hmm. They are not trained to be any sort of healthcare providers. The idea f is that the people on the plane are healthy and they are healthy enough to fly and they're going to take care of themselves for the, uh, for the rest of the flight. So they're very happy to have a healthcare provider step up mm -hmm. and help. Uh, they, the other thing that has to remember about the flight attendants is they have duties throughout the flight. So if they're taking care of doing CPR or something on this one passenger, every other passenger they're now neglecting. And they actually have safety checks that they have to do periodically and certainly to care, prepare the cabin for, for arrival and landing. So you are definitely doing them a very good service mm -hmm. by, by volunteering. We've been discussing in-flight medical emergencies with Dr. Robert Haddon and Dr. Mary Jane Harris, both experts in aerospace medicine. Bob and Mary Jane, thank you so much for coming here, and uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.